Presses Play. Hey everyone, and welcome to Girl Presses Play, the movie podcast where we talk about films, what we think about them, and what makes them so damn great. I'm your host, Alana Rafferty. Get comfy, grab some popcorn, and get ready, because we're about to press play. And now for our feature presentation. Hello again, fellow film lovers, and welcome back. So, for today's episode, we are not only looking at a remake of a film, but we are taking a look at our first international remake of a film. So, the Coen Brothers' debut feature, Blood Simple, is a Western noir that's in the same vein as Double Indemnity. This film is absolutely wholly coen brothers down to its very core of course all of their other films that are more noted no country for old men no brother were art there you can definitely see you know the person that made the films but this film which is their debut film they wrote it directed it produced it and even edited it under the pseudonym roderick james so there's nothing in this film that isn't coming from joel and ethan cohen so what happens when not only another filmmaker but a filmmaker from another country, in this case, Zhang Mu from China, decides to remake a decidedly American film from two American filmmakers, especially because it's not only one of their lesser known films, but again, it's just, it's their baby. It's their firstborn. And how do two filmmakers feel about their very first, very personal film being remade by someone else? So today, we are going to do some digging and investigating and discovering of what happens with guest stars, the celluloid mirrors, Sean Mannion, and Nicole Solomon, when we take a look at 1984's Blood Simple and 2009's A Woman, a Gun, and a Noodle Shop. I got a job for you. It's not strictly legal. You want me to kill him? They are the minds behind Four Mile Circus, a full cycle media company that offers promotion, consulting, video production, and post production services for artists, entrepreneurs, and nonprofits. Their film Meme won Best Feature at the Art of Brooklyn Film Festival in 2018 and is now available to stream online on iTunes or at Four Mile Circus's official website. Nicole's short films, It's Normal and Small Talk, are free to watch on Vimeo, IndieBoom, or Amazon Prime. Upcoming projects include their short animated horror comedy, Reveal, due for release later this year. And of course, you can also listen to their amazing podcast, The Celluloid Mirror, on iTunes, Spotify, and Anchor Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Nicole Solomon and Sean Mannion. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show, virtually speaking. Thank you so speaking. much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. This is delightful. This I mean, is- we are in your building lobby. Honestly, like, I wouldn't mind that. In like little, in like little pods. We could just we sit like first like. grade style in like my little rug. We could all have like our <laughs> beers or our snacks. Just sit around one little mic. Be like, you know, someday, 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 in the after times. I'm sure that's what we'll call it, the after times. Oh yeah, oh, already God. calling it that. Already, already there. I'm not going to lie, Sean. So for context for listeners, Sean has a beach background in his Zoom. And the first thing I thought was, 
Oh my God, I missed the beach so much. <laughs> that one was my, my first thought. <laughs> one of my students is in Florida. And so this morning when I, when I was checking in, he's like, it's 70 degrees. I'm like, not sure. Maybe I should fail him just for being more comfortable than me. Yeah, but he's in uh, Florida, so he's he's got enough problems going on right now, honestly. Yeah. Probably. Yeah, I don't know. I got a lot of people <laughs> in Florida right now that I, I wish were not in Florida. So oh, I know true. the feeling. I know the feeling. So on to a possibly more pleasant or just stranger conversation, which is comparing these two films. What were your first impressions of watching these films? Not just like as films themselves, but kind of connecting the two. Did you see any connections? Were they just like so not the same that you couldn't even put two to two together or see like any tendrils of connection? I'm curious to know your thoughts. I mean, for me, I'd seen Blood Simple before. I had not seen a woman, a gun in a noodle shop before. So I, I watched that um, about a week ago, maybe. Or a few days ago. And then today I actually rewatched Blood Simple while I was like doing some work. So um, I, I watched A Woman, A Gun, and A Noodle Shop first in terms of like this recent watching. Ooh. And I'm glad I did that. I'm glad I did that for various reasons we can get into. But I mean, from the very beginning, I was like, yes, this is roughly the same plot as Blood Simple, just in a different context. And then the second half of the movie is like virtually beat for beat just exactly what happens in Blood Simple, just in a different context. So the connections between them were very readily apparent for me mm -hmm. upon viewing. Yeah, I for me, it was the first time watching both of them. Blood Simple has been on my list for a really long time, but I uh, just hadn't gotten around to watching it. So I watched that one over the weekend and I watched The, the Noodle Shop on Tuesday, so just a couple of days ago. So I was pretty fresh from seeing Blood Simple for the first time, which was interesting and just kind of noting some some just sort of stylistic stuff about it that uh, that i was enjoying and then uh noodle shop basically like knowing that it was i think if i'd seen blood simple and i didn't know that this was a remake i would have pretty quickly picked up that it was a remake in the middle not so much the beginning i think the be the beginning was interesting because it's so tonally different that sort of bizarre over-the-top comedy which was really fun to watch and it's, it's just that's sort of a nice touch and then it has that tone shift but it's not a full tone shift in the middle but it has that tone shift in the middle where then it starts to really just kind of replicate the scenes transplant the scenes from blood simple into into this noodle shop it was interesting to see them both and to see that kind of recontextualization of the blood simple story because it is such a Oh man, I need a different word, but I'm just going to say simple. It is such a simple story uh, for, yeah, I, I didn't, I wasn't, didn't mean to go there, but like my brain is just like, just say simple, just do it. Almost uh, archetypical perhaps. Kind of. Yeah. It's like such a straightforward, this is just what happens. There is, there's not a whole lot of plot. I don't want to say not a whole lot of plot complexity, but there's really not. Yeah. It's just a pretty straightforward story. Easy to transplant. It's not a complicated story. No, it was, but it is such a, it is such a just sort of boiled down simple story that it does transplant really well into another setting. You know, I would even say that if they hadn't so closely replicated those specific scenes for the last half of noodle shop i could even see an argument that eh, maybe it's not a maybe it's not a, a remake because it because it doesn't wouldn't necessarily have to be 
to still tell that same kind of story, which I think is in some ways a good thing. It's a good thing about both of them. It's a good thing about Blood Simple because it's just here's the story. We're not trying to overcomplicate or anything like that. There's the story. And then this noodle shop, it's modern, but also sort of has this sort of bizarre historical setting as well. That works. Yeah. One thing that after like going through my notes and gathering my thoughts, because two movies or a movie will take a half hour longer for this just because I like to like, take notes and I don't necessarily trust just, oh, I'll remember that thing. But one thing I didn't realize until looking back at my notes is how different all the characters are. I think that's what threw me off more than the cultural differences or I wasn't thrown off too much by the tone because for me... The style of comedy that Z Mu used was very similar to the comedy that the Coen brothers have done with Oh Brother Where Art Thou and Hail Caesar. There's that very kind of like everything's turned up to 15 style comedy mm -hmm. that I think that's why for me it worked for Noodle Shop is because it's not like something the Coen brothers don't do or maybe even had in the back of their head at some points when they were making Blood Simple. But I did think it was so interesting how the Frances McDermott character in Blood Simple and her translation in A Woman, A Gun, and A Noodle Shop was just so different. And same for the love interest as well. I was thinking that too when I was watching Blood Simple today, having just watched Noodle Shop recently, like especially with the female lead, how different their personalities were, how mm -hmm. different their relationships were to like in Noodle Shop, the titular weapon in Blood Simple, just a, you know, not... It's not in the title, but the scene at the very beginning where she gets the gun in Noodle Shop is like a, just a very different, aside from the comedy, just in terms of character motivation, psychological profile, relationship to violence, very different than the Frances McDormand character in Blood Simple. That I completely agree and was seeing that a lot. And I, I also agree that although Blood Simple isn't really a manifestation of it, the Coen brothers do have this particular sense of humor that I think is baked into everything they do, even the more dramatic, less comedic, less laugh out loud, funny stuff. There is this kind of very, uh, perhaps like gallows humory type thing mm -hmm. that is definitely present in Blood Simple. And so I feel like the DNA is there. And while it flowered differently in Noodle Shop, there's a connection there. You know, mm -hmm. there's definitely yeah. a, a shared sensibility. It didn't feel like, you know, what the heck is this? I don't know why. Yeah. Why am I saying heck? Why am I not swearing? I'm sure I'm allowed to swear on your podcast. That's because it's because I, yeah. <laughs> I was teaching. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> I actually was very impressed by, oh, they flowered differently. I was like, that's such a delicate adjective for two incredibly like in your face violent movie <laughs> well alana in case you didn't notice i'm a writer so i just could turn <laughs> a phrase occasionally when i stumble into the value you that haven't just divulged thing. into like <laughs> neanderthalic grunts like we all have here in quarantine uh, <laughs> no no i mean it was an accident that like that phrase made any sense that's the part that you're like that just you know it happens once in a while it's like the monkeys and typewriters thing oh yeah the every for those of you who may not know it it's like eventually a thousand monkeys in a room together will write hamlet i think is what it is yeah and eventually i'm on yeah. a podcast and something i say makes sense so you know 
Yeah. Eventually. Hey, if we Happy could make that everyone. happen on our podcast <laughs> once in a while, that'd be great. That could be a Man. Patreon episode like, for I, every $5. I, you know, I'm obviously never going to do it. So, so if, you could pull, <laughs> if you could pull that off on our show once in a while, that'd be great. This, this is a great idea. I hope you're taking notes, Sean, for our, our Patreon subscriber I, drive we're going to do at some point, someday. I, I take These notes are great. here just like I take notes watching movies. If I remember it, it was important. Now all I'm hearing in my head is you get a monkey and you get a monkey and you get a monkey. <laughs> Everybody gets okay, a monkey. If like we, only. That could happen. We, we could make that happen. Now, monkeys. back, back to the show. I got a monkey guy. Back to the show. Uh, <laughs> back to the show. Um, it's, it, speaking of like the humor side of it, while you're talking about that, I was thinking about their sense of humor and how their sense of humor manifests it in the film. And I do think, well, it is not necessarily, it's not necessarily a very comedic moment. I do think there's that darkly comedic moment where his hand gets pinned to the windowsill. Like mm -hmm. that seems yep. like that kind of absurd humor. And then he starts shooting through the wall. I think it's that kind of dark humor of theirs, that kind of absurdist humor of theirs. And just there's a couple of things in that movie that when I think back on them, one, we texted about it a little bit, Nicole, and it relates to the comedy, is their relationship to Sam Raimi and the Evil Dead movies. Yep. There's that mm -hmm. Evil Dead, the monster in the woods shot when the husband was trying to drag her out of the house and he gets hit and that there's that the sweeping camera comes up. But uh, thinking back on him, his hand getting stabbed into the windowsill, when he shoots the holes in the wall, it's a little bit like the scene in Evil Dead 2 where Ash is blowing holes in the wall and his evil hand is hiding in the wall waiting to come and get him. And they, I can't remember if it's the first one or the second one. I think it's the second one, but they helped cut the second movie. So there's part of me that kind of wonders about their humor with that and how yeah. that the, well, I know, yeah. I think Absolutely. Joel Cohen was not a PA, but some sort of like second AD or something on the first Evil Dead. Yeah, I mean, I think it's that uh, I'm just going to IMDb it, but I'm pretty Let's sure one of them one of them helped cut the edit the movie. There's a definite kinship there, though, yeah. I think. And, mm -hmm. and I think there's overlapping sensibilities between like all three of these. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would films. say the biggest difference, though, between the Coens and Raimi just kind of flashing back on their dis um, not their discography, their filmography. <laughs> I feel like. The one thing they do very differently is that they don't show a lot of the violence. I would actually say of all the Coen Brothers films I've seen, including their dramas, Blood Simple probably has the most blood. And I feel like any other violence in a lot of their movies, like No Country for Old Men, for example, a lot of it's alluded to because it's so much mm. more about building the tension rather than the release of it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah think absolutely. That uh, makes I, sense. Joel was assistant editor on the first movie. Fascinating. So. I did not know that. Actually, no, I knew that he worked on it, but I didn't know he was the assistant editor. Yeah. And I think um, in the commentary, I think, or notes for the second movie, Around the time that Raimi was making the second movie, he was living with the Coen brothers uh, mm. and Holly Hunter. I think there was like this house with Holly Hunter, the Coen brothers and Sam Raimi. And that just sounds just magical to me. I Even want that I to be like a one night. I want I haven't seen the movie, but I want to see it so badly. I want that to be like a one night in Miami style play where it's like the four heavy hitters of Texas indie cinema, even though none of them are actually from Texas. Get together. Would watch. 
I would watch that as well in a heartbeat. One thing that I think is also very interesting about Noodle Shop is the fact that Yang Zimu is not known for comedies at all. Mm. He had one of his big directing credits was that he directed the 2008 Olympics opening ceremony, the one with all the light up drums. Mm -hmm. He also directed Hero and House of Flying Daggers, which they're not... I wouldn't call them like the sword and sandal movies of China, but they're the big historical action epics. So mm-hmm. I almost feel like not only did he really take on a lot by trying to adapt this very classic American indie, but he was also really trying a genre he hadn't tried before. Do you think that helped or hurt Noodle Shop? Because unfortunately, the mainstream reviews for this film are not very favorable. I should also say the mainstream reviews mostly written by white American critics. I mean, I haven't seen any of his other stuff in a while. I saw House of Flying Daggers back when it came out. I remember, but that was a while back. And yeah, I was thinking that this was tonally different than what I thought of as being his stuff. I mean, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the broad slapstick comedy. It was absurd, but I go for that sometimes so I think it served him fine I thought I enjoyed it I thought it worked I thought I was kind of pissed off honestly at how negative the western response was to it and we can talk a little bit later maybe about why we think that might be and things like that but I was like you know I don't know blood simple is not a sacred text to me like we talked about before it's such an easily translatable in many respects simple story why not see this different take on it I found that refreshing And I thought it worked. I was entertained. Is it as successful a movie on balance as Blood Simple? At this moment in time, I'm inclined to say Blood Simple is overall a better film. But that doesn't mean there's not space for this other one, too. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Similarly, I don't think I've seen his other films, to be honest. The big historical epics aren't usually my bag. But the tone of the film, I actually was kind of excited when it started getting when it was just immediately super weird and it was making a jokes about i don't know why the persian guy spoke english and why the joke was about the moose thing yeah the moose (laughs) thing like i assume it's probably because they're like there are two markets that this film is going to play in. it's going to play in china it's going to play in the u.s and then the rest of the world maybe we'll see or maybe it's just that they had like the regionalized joke in the version I saw, it's like, all right, for the American market, the joke is a moose. We do it in French. The joke is something else. I don't know. But that was that whole sequence. It's very strange, very absurd. On reflection, I liked that the wife was a much more active participant in everything. Damn. I mean, until she was drunk and passed out. But she was much less of a sexy lamp. You know, at the end of Blood Simple, she's obviously like, it's, very, it's different. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, but she a was lot. pushed to that point. Like she yeah, was like not... that was her character growth was she becomes active yeah. rather than she starts out as active and then we see her make choices. Yeah. And I think that it's in that respect, it is better in that one of the core characters is just more developed with motivations and interests and anything. Like Francis McDormand's character, much as I love Francis McDormand, that character honestly really just works because it's Francis McDormand. Because totally she agree. is very, very, it's one of those things where 
you know, it's not all the time, but a good actor can make a Finn character at least relatable or uh, sympathetic just by the way they play what little they have. And Francis McDormand is very good at that. And uh, the noodle shop gave everybody a little bit more to do. Even the the sort of surrounding characters where, you know, there's the bar, there's the people who work at the bar in Blood Simple. He doesn't have much except for that opening bit where he's like walking over the bar and he turns That's on cool. the song. That's mm -hmm. awesome. I love those shots. I love that sequence. But otherwise, he's just there to play the song for the most part. And yeah, but, and the answering machine. I feel like yeah. at that point, I liked his character and I love that scene. But I feel like the answering machine scene was kind of like, oh, so he's just a MacGuffin now, I guess. Or he's just kind of a means yeah. to an end character. But and the then, other employees at the noodle shop, they... <laughs> They Holy were like actual thing. characters. Yeah. The, oh, that was great. That with was the dough, amazing. With like the noodle dough, that part. That was, that was a delight. And, and then they actually have like some involvement. They're like, I think there's something going on. We got to do something about this. And their whole interaction. It's fun. It works. I mean, I think that's one of the things. And maybe I'm jumping ahead on like uh, stuff that you want to talk about. But How I think that's dare you mess up the outline, Sean. <laughs> I think it's one of the advantages of, of a remake. And I would say that like, while. I would probably watch Blood Simple again before I would watch Noodle Shop again, just mm -hmm. because Blood Simple in certain respects overall, I do think is a better film while Noodle Shop also raises the bar on certain things. I don't think Noodle Shop as a total package worked as well for me, mostly because I find the, the tonal shift wasn't a huge problem, but it was enough that I felt like not because it didn't need to get dark, but because I felt like I was like, all right, I'm in goofy comedy, goofy comedy. OK, but the goofy comedy is just kind of evaporated for the end here. And now it's just kind of in certain respects, just kind of parroting Blood Simple for parts of it and not in a bad way, but just like, well, if I want to watch that, then I'll just watch Blood Simple again. But I think that one thing that it is doing well, that Noodle Shop is doing well as a remake and something I think that well, remakes don't have to do this. I think it's great when they do this is it took what was there and said, oh, we can make these parts better. Even if they weren't thinking we can make these parts better, they were just like, oh, yeah, our lead woman needs to we're going to give her something to do. We're going to make her more active. She's going to be driving it a, a lot more. We're going to have these side characters are going to be a lot more active and interested in their subplot there with them when they take advantage of the opportunity as opposed to just kind of going like okay well we're gonna have this character map to this character and this character map to this character and it's gonna be exactly the same character in a new context or just with new actors playing them i think it takes the the structure and the and the story of blood simple and it just says okay now we're gonna put characters different characters in those roles and let them live that out and they are different characters. They do, and, and they are, in, in certain respects, more developed. Uh, even if it is sometimes just for laughs, it, they are still more developed. It's interesting, because what you were talking about with really taking the bones of Blood Simple and then making Noodle Shop different in its color palette and its character portrayals and the kind of tone it's trying to achieve, it for some reason made me think of when Gus Van Sant remade psycho and everyone asked him why he remade it because he basically did a shot for shot remake just mm -hmm. in present time so it was less expensive but that was really it and then he ended up saying i remade it so that no one else would have to which i thought was really interesting and it does make me wonder about like 
how much respect if it is like technically a remake in the way that this is technically a remake of Blood Simple, how much respect is a filmmaker expected to pay to the original source material? Expected by who? Like by mm -hmm. do we think it should or or how much do we yeah. think other I think people that answer I think the answer to that question, Nicole, would have been different twenty years ago. I think twenty years ago it would have just been film critics. But now at the interwebs, it's all the people who get suddenly real nostalgic about, for example, we're doing an Ocean's Eleven episode. They suddenly get really nostalgic about the 1960s Ocean Eleven and things that shouldn't be touched. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly it. I think that's why, this is my guess, that why Noodle Shop got such a poor reception in the, in the Western world, at least, is exactly that, is that Blood Simple is considered this like unimpeachable independent film masterpiece. And people love it so much and are so reverential towards it. And that's all fine. I think it's an excellent film. It's not one of my favorite films of all time, the way it is for a lot of people. I don't, you know, feel like it's that sacred a text or anything like that. But people think it's so great. And there, it seems like there's this knee-jerk offense taken at the idea of remaking something that was already good. Because why remake it if it was already good? And I mean, my answer would be, you know, because you have a reason. And in this case, the reason is doing it in a very different way, right? It's a very different take on the material. I feel like it is such a, keep saying this, but simple despite the plot twists and whatnot. You know, it's like, there's an affair going on. The woman's husband finds out, hires someone to kill them, but instead the killer shoots the husband, you know? And like, it's such a like, you know, and maybe later we can talk a little about thematically, what is this about? Why did any of these filmmakers want to make a film about these topics? What's the point? And ergo, like, what might be the point in remaking it or not? But, you know, for me, it's just that. It's like, you know, in this case, totally different take on the material, coming up with different characters. And, you know, it's different enough and done skillfully enough and is entertaining enough that I'm like, why not? That's great. In Gus Van Sant's case, though, it was kind of the opposite thing. And mm -hmm. I... Hot take coming through. I'm the rare person who will somewhat defend the Gus Van Sant remake of Psycho. I smell a Patreon episode. <laughs> similarly, I just don't see Psycho. One, I don't see Psycho as being sacred. And two, I think the experiment that Gus Van Sant was attempting was an interesting one. Because his theory, as he said it, was that Psycho was supposedly such a well-constructed film that if you redid it and just updated it a little bit so that it wasn't anachronistic, it should work for a present day audience as well. That was like the thesis. And, you know, depending on how you received the result, his, his thesis may have been incorrect. But I think that's interesting. I don't, I've only seen Gus Van Sant's Psycho once. I would watch it again because it's been a long time, but I might not ever watch it again after that. It, my point isn't that it's yeah. like, a movie I particularly like, but I just am enough of a nerd, I guess, that I think that's interesting. And I think that's a better reason for a remake than like, oh, we can probably squeeze some money out of it, mm -hmm. which is the reason almost everything gets remade. Mm -hmm. And those are the remakes that bother me when it's just purely crass commercialism. Nobody has any inspiration. Nobody has an idea. Nobody's bringing something new to the table or testing some wonky theory or any of these things that I find more appealing. It's just like, well, we can make another Texas Chainsaw and this time we'll just call it Texas Chainsaw because that's what people call Texas Chainsaw Massacre anyway, but it'll be the third sequel to the, or second sequel rather, to the reboot. And 
you know what? Nobody cares. It, it has Texas Chainsaw on the name. People will That's go. That's all that matters. No, this one, and, and now we're going to do one, and it's actually, it's actually just a sequel to the original. That, but it doesn't discount the original sequel. It's just in addition to the original sequel. Why? <laughs> and to be fair, I'm not necessarily even against horror reboots and sequels. Mm -hmm. It just depends. It depends. Is there any inspiration there? Does anyone actually give a shit? Does anyone mm -hmm. care, you know, uh, besides like the members on the crew who are trying to yeah. do their best job? Does anybody, you know, in above the line creative roles, do they really care about anything other than the paycheck? And that, you know, I don't have a problem with remakes and reboots. I do wish there was more funding going to more original content. But like mm -hmm. Noodle Shop didn't prevent somebody's original movie from getting produced, probably. No. I think that's a very good point. And I think that... Unfortunately, I think that some pre-existing IPs are, I don't want to say they're the only way, but they're one of the few ways that you can kind of sneak your ideas in there. I haven't seen this yet, but the remake of Invisible Man, for example, oh. really plays with the premise of the film. And I wouldn't say it changes the DNA of the film, but not to spoil it too much. Spoiler for the Invisible Man. So, you know, he's not actually invisible. He's just got the crazy, like, camera suit thing. Right. But the way that it talked about domestic violence and how we carry trauma and how we physicalize trauma, like, that is such an interesting idea to explore in horror. And Lee Wanell probably needed the Invisible Man IP in order to tell that story. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, I liked the Invisible Rant, Ran, the Invisible Man. <laughs> the Invisible Randy. The Invisible Randy, you know, the classic. <laughs> the next the Invisible Man. I would watch that. Of course you gotta watch the Invisible Randy. That Randy is always sneaking around, takes a bite out of your sandwich, you know, that's what I'm imagining at least. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I'm I'm excited for Nia DaCosta's Candyman remake. I'm, oh, excited, I'm so excited for like a oh, lot I'm so of these. Excited. If you've got a filmmaker who you're like, yeah, I want to see that person's take on this source material. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, that it's not even yeah. about how good or bad the source material is. It's about, okay, what do we got here and who's going to do what with it? Great. You know, there's a lot of knee-jerk anti-remake, anti-reboot stuff that I have a measure of sympathy for. But then when it crosses over, like, the weird reaction to Noodle Shop where people are like, oh, Blood Simple didn't need to be remade. It was so good the first time. And I'm like, but it's, yeah, the story's the same, but the context is different. The characters are different. They're so different. It's not just repeating what was already done. It's not like the story is the only component of a film. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like the plot is the only or even most important part necessarily of a film. Yeah. And I will actually say, to be fair to one of the reviews, I believe it was the Roger Ebert review. He did say, I didn't love this film, but I'm just not into this kind of film just because like this film isn't my sort of thing. I don't want to say it's like a bad movie inherently because of that. Good for Ebert. Mm. Good for Ebert indeed. And I also feel mm. like I believe 2009 and I just may be making a conspiracy theory here. I believe 2009 was kind of right before the Judd Apatow era of Knocked Up and I'm blanking on It was right in the middle of it. Yeah. It was like right in the middle of it. So that whole kind of like slapstick buffoon and things are just getting really weird sort of comedy. It hadn't taken over what mm -hmm. we think of as comedy in the US, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, that period hadn't. I think Knocked Up had already come out, and I think Superbad had come out. I know Superbad had come out because yeah, I'm trying to remember if Step Brothers came out because if you think of it, it's it a really right around weird that movie. time. Like, yeah, really the, weird movie, and everyone loves that. Yeah, and that and this movie is definitely like tonally sort of aligned with that sort of weirdness and the slapstick mm-hmm. and. Which became like really, really dominant, as you're, as, you're, as you're saying, became really, really dominant for a while. I just wanted to say about the question of like remakes. I, I haven't seen the Gus Van Sant Psycho, so maybe I should watch that because I've been curious about that, but I haven't Bonus seen it. app. You uh, <laughs> could totally do that. But I am generally in favor of remakes just because I want to see what they want to do with it. Whether it's just a like money grab and maybe somebody involved creatively is like, okay, but like, I actually think I've got a good idea for this or just give it a shot. And there's some where I've given them, all right, I'm going to give you enough. uh, I'm going to give you enough room to see if you can do it or just shoot yourself in the foot. And for me specifically, as far as remakes go and my relationship to them, I grew up as like a huge Star Trek fan. and. In 2009, again, uh, Mm. they pseudo rebooted Star Trek with the new cast. And I was very into that. The first movie isn't really a reboot or remake. It's a newish thing. And I was like, okay, I was excited about it. I get to have like this thing again, which is a new take on it. And then they did the second movie. And then they did Star Trek Into Darkness, which is first a terrible movie. And two is actually a remake of the second Star Trek movie. It is a remake of Wrath of Khan. And the problem with that as a remake is they cribbed chunks of script from that original second movie. They're like, all right, let's take this piece and this piece and this piece in order to shortcut emotional development for their characters that they never earned. That's the kind of remake that when I see it, something like that, where they're like, well, we're going to take that this story or these pieces of the story so that we don't have to do the work of telling our story. I think that's a problem in general. Like if you want to remake something, redo something, that's fine. As long as I can still watch the original because I don't like what you did. Fine. That's the great thing about film is, yeah, there's what, 10 versions or something like that of Maltese Falcon. And the famous one is like the third one. Or A Star yeah. is Born. There's like five versions of that. And everyone have, basically remembers either the Judy Garland one or the one that just came out with Lady Gaga. Yeah. Which I honestly, have never seen any of them. That's I've such a. Se- it's honestly, it's a that's a story that reminds me a lot of the Blood Simple story because it's mm-hmm. a pretty simple story. There's a musician or it could be some other sort of artist, you know, who meets and falls in love with the ingenue who then usurps him or you could change the genders of the people. But, you know, it's the established star kind of mentors the up and comer who then rises above them and that messes up their relationship. It's a very classic tale as old as time, much like someone's cheating. Maybe they're going to get their comeuppance, but maybe then, you know, violence begets violence and is going to get turned back around on the person who, you know, that's a similar, very classic tale. I'm not mad. It's a star is born getting remade. I would be mad if it was getting remade every year. But you know what? If every couple decades, new pair of stars, new telling of this story, there's a reason. I know Sean probably has some things to say about this. There are reasons why we tell these stories over and over and over again. And I think it's weird 
to pretend every story needs to be original when so much of storytelling is not about originality. You know, it's about there's a reason these stories, these dynamics, these combinations of things continue to be compelling decade after decade after decade after decade. You know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you think of, even though it's technically not a remake, you think of how many films, especially like romantic dramas, are basically either a take on either Romeo and Juliet or the Orpheus and Eurydice Greek mythology story. Like the amount of romantic movies I have balled to and I go back and I look at the trivia and go, oh, they're basically just telling the Orpheus and Eurydice story in their own way. It's like, there's nothing new under the sun. It's not like reinventing the wheel. It's, do you make a really interesting wheel? Do you make a wheel with grooves in it? Do you make a wheel for the mountains? Do you make a wheel for the beach or something like that? And what's that? the perspective? Yeah. What's the perspective? What's the mm -hmm. tone? What's the style? All of those kinds of things change things so much to the point mm -hmm. where a story might be unrecognizable. You know, Blood Simple is different depending on whose perspective yeah. you're looking mm -hmm. at it from. You could tell that story from the perspective of the husband. Mm -hmm. Be a different mm -hmm. story. Do it from the perspective of the bartender. It would be a different story. Yeah, or the perspective of the cop or the, I keep on calling him Boss Hog, even though that's not his <laughs> name in the film, but the M.M. Oh, yeah. Walsh character. Like, like, yeah. You know, like you're right. Like, there's no one way to tell or to show mm -hmm. a story. And I think, I wonder how much, because another big difference between these films is this is the Coen brothers first debut film and they along with Barry Sonnefeld who was the cinematographer on this totally admit they had no idea what they were doing whereas Yang Zimu which was much more seasoned had a lot of films come out by the time that he had remade Blood Symbol so I wonder how much there is also that almost like a star is born quality of Blood Simple was the ingenue that everybody just fell in love with because it was this amazing debut film. And For everyone sure. just assumed that like Yang Zimu shouldn't be making these kind of movies because he makes Hero and House of Flying Daggers and he directs the Olympics, not these like mm -hmm. wacky, zany comedies. Yeah, people can get weird when you thwart their expectations rather than being delighted by, oh, someone can do more than one thing. They're like, but I thought you were the person who did that thing. And I want you to just keep doing the thing I think of you as because I don't want my brain to get challenged at all yeah once you set your niche you're not allowed to break out of it and unless especially if you've established yourself as a voice as as he did within that sort of whole auteur thing there's so few directors who really are allowed to flex and work around no matter how much work they do it's usually just the ones where it's like, oh, yeah, that guy did it. I think the Coen brothers are somewhat lucky in that they have range built into their oeuvre that, mm -hmm. you know, they establish themselves in, in some darker films. And then they hit with comedies. Uh, I think The Big Lebowski didn't perform as well when it first came out. That, of course, grew into this whole cult following. And Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou was just such a thing when it came out that I think it, it gave them, it really, this gives them permission to have more flexibility uh, and make everything from no country for, for old men to like a simple, what is it, a simple man? Is that a, simple man? a simple man? No, no, or what's it called? A serious man. A serious, a serious man. man. I'm Sorry. a serious man. Yeah, no, I did. The, I was yeah. like, yes, a simple man. Because <laughs> you I know was what you're thinking same thing. I was just saying, um, you know, horror and comedy are so closely related, and I think you see how tight-knit they are in the Coen's oeuvre, because Blood Simple combines elements of a horror film, too, although I don't generally think of them as being horror directors. It's a lot like a low-budget 
horror thriller. It's also a lot like, you know, a comedy that has that kind of gallows humor in it. Although it's not either. It's, you know, it's a drama. It's arguably, I guess, a thriller of sorts. I mean, it's mostly the Coens playing with film noir tropes, I guess, and like putting them in this particular context they were interested in and working with the kind of dialogue they were interested in writing and all of that. Yeah. And I'm sure not to like downplay the movie at all, but I also... As someone who's trying to write a feature that they could see feasibly get made in the next like five years or so, they're probably also writing to, okay, what kind of sets can we get? How many actors can we afford? And I think that's what today is brought to you by the word simple. I think that's what makes the film so simple yet so effective is that they only had so many elements they could work with for first time feature directors with a low budget that they just had to make each element really good. Absolutely. And I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, because I don't know that much about the making of Blood Simple, but it also has that first feature kind of feeling of part of why it's so good is I feel like they had some time to let their ideas percolate Uh and to Mm -hmm. work on the script and refine it and hone it. And so they were able when they actually made it. It's shocking to me that they're saying, oh, I didn't know what I was doing, because that's not how that film comes across. That film Mm -hmm. comes across as very Mm -hmm. tightly controlled. And so even if they didn't know what they were doing in terms of production, I think they knew exactly what they were doing in terms of what they wanted to get on film. Uh And thankfully with Barry Sonnenfeld, who is such an amazing DP and does such great work that, you know, I think that was just a a match made in heaven of Mm -hmm. sorts. And they were Mm -hmm. just able to plan enough and work with their limitations and work with what they have that it just really, really, really worked and doesn't really feel like a amateurist first feature by people who don't know what they're doing at all. No, not at all. And I definitely think a lot of that planning, I feel like watching the Yang Zemu version, as zany and crazy as it is, I mean, first of all, to make a movie in China, you have to plan ahead a lot because you have to get past the Chinese censors in order to actually physically get your film made. So there was just a level of planning that he had to do. But I also do feel like even just how much all of the different stories were interwoven, especially introducing the two people that work at the noodle shop that were kind of in the original, but not really in the original, like they fit in pretty seamlessly and nothing really feels all that shoehorned. I think the care and consideration is one of those unexpected tendrils that connects Mm -hmm. both movies and both filmmakers. Absolutely. Everybody cares, which is part of why the negativity about Noodle Shop is weird to me. Because I'm like, this wasn't a slapdash cash-in in in any way, shape, or form. No, this isn't isn't like the inevitable in 20 years version of Blood Simple that somebody's going to, that some studio is going to make. Whatever's whatever's left after the streaming wars are done. Alrighty, we are going to take a pause there and take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, Alana here, and it's been a lot of fun making this podcast. I get to talk about what I love, meet some really cool people doing it, and I have total creative freedom. Are you interested in making your own podcast? Go for it, and go for it with Anchor. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more platforms. There's even creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And best of all, it's free. So what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. All 
All right, and welcome back. Without further ado, here is the rest of the conversation I had with Nicole Solomon and Sean Mannion about Blood Simple and A Woman, A Gun, and A Noodle Shop. That is another thing I found very interesting about not just Blood Simple, but the Coen brothers in general is that Joel or Ethan, I forget, but one of them went to Texas A&M for mm. college. And so they seem to have this fascination with the Wild West and the desert, which is interesting for two kids from Missouri. And I'm not sure about where Yang Zimu is from in China specifically, but I did find that same kind of like fascination of the desert town where big things are happening in this very kind of small fishbowl environment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I thought that was an interesting thing also in the two films is I liked the cinematography in both of them and it's so different the way the landscape is approached in a lot of respects even though there are similarities between the landscapes even though they're in completely different countries. There is this kind of romance of the desert and you know the the sweeping nature of the you know horizon or something out of words <laughs> there's there's a certain isolation know. to the desert not just from mm -hmm. like the human cities uh, people that's that's obviously there but there's also it's part of nature but the desert also feels devoid of nature it feels like you're truly like separate from it's separate from everything else and it's this little pocket Mm -hmm. where yeah there's not like there's maybe animals and stuff but it's really just this sort of different separate kind of alien world when you're not hell not even when you're not there and just seeing it on screen but when you are there it's a the, the desert is a very sort of empty place or it feels very empty it's not actually very empty but it feels like such an empty place that it does make for a really good setting for this kind of story because it really strips out everything but this is the whole world like don't worry about what anything else that's happening in this world the whole world is this small story and yeah. this is all that's involved with it i yeah. think the desert does something for that i think it's something that that helps with westerns a lot of course is is that i mean and then there's a whole other thing to talk about as far as Westerns and how that's kind of fucked up and that sort of man alone isolationism of, of the desert that happens with that. But, but in these stories in these sort of noir stories, I think it helps to really focus it. Yeah. I also feel like, especially for Zimu's version, there's definitely this feeling, and this might also be because he specifically hired Chinese theater actors or actors who had been trained in the tradition of Chinese theater, it almost felt like it was a stage. Like it almost mm. slightly felt like it was a filmed version of a stage play because it was so vacuous and there were all those big wide shots where the characters were just teensy little colorful dots bopping around, whereas the Coen brothers were so close in all the time and everything just mm -hmm. felt so you're right there and it felt very intimate and visceral. I feel like that was for me the biggest difference was the kind of level of connection and being right there-ness that you have with the characters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The sweeping landscape shots and noodle shop were gorgeous, just impressive. And just seeing the characters, as you say, like as just sort of these like colorful dots moving across the screen at times, rather than like being so tight and enclosed in with our characters. I mean, Blood Simple feels a lot more claustrophobic throughout. Even when the woman is trapped with the, um, with the soldier in noodle shop, 
versus when Francis McDormand is trapped with M. Emmett Walsh. Like when Francis McDormand is trapped, it feels a lot more claustrophobic. It is a lot more claustrophobic. And uh, they always feel kind of trapped. Like it even starts with that shot of them in the car together. We're in the backseat of the car and they're having that conversation. We start trapped in a car where we can't even see, really see out the front window. We can't even um, see their faces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is a, an interesting sort of depersonalizing way to start that movie. It is. I I actually, I was really taken by the opening scene, watching it again today, just by the atmosphere they create, by the combination of the score mm-hmm. and the percussion of the windshield wipers going back and forth and hitting on these beats. And then like the way the credits are coming up and we're not even seeing the actors' faces. We're just hearing this dialogue that's been constructed with a lot of care. Mm-hmm. The Coen brothers really care about dialogue and that's apparent from their very first film. And it just really sucks you into this world that's not even about the characters so much as like the milieu, the vibe. That's that's how it felt to me, at least. The atmosphere that they create instantaneously. Yeah, it's a very, very effective opening. It's a very effective ending for that film as well. Nicole knows that I love to talk about my openings and endings on things. Like I, I made it a whole day of lecture in, in a class that I'm teaching. Uh, openings and endings. And I do think that the, the opening and the construction of it and that depersonalization... There's a distance as close as Blood Simple is, there is still a distance from the characters. I never feel like I really get to know any of them that well outside of the context of this mm-hmm. story, which works really well for me in this context. I'm like, I don't, I didn't even think about it until I don't even think I thought about it until now. That like, why is Francis McDormand exactly married to Dan Hedaya? Other than that, obviously, Dan Hedaya is a gorgeous man. But what is the context there? Mm-hmm. I think so many times we would get that context. And we have a little bit of that in the noodle shop. Like a little bit of the context comes in there. There's a little bit uh, more, I think, that comes in with the characterization. But it feels like with the Coen brothers and Blood Simple, it almost doesn't want you to know that much about anybody. It just wants you to be like, you're here watching this happen. You don't know anybody. You're just watching this whole story go on. And mm-hmm. I think it forces a certain empathy for just about everybody, but maybe M.M. at Walsh. I feel like he's the only one who I was, although even with him, I was kind of like, I didn't really blame him for some of what mm-hmm. he was doing. There's um, maybe like a level of projection onto the main characters, the characters in the triangle that whether that was intentional or by accident because they were thinking about like the dialogue and the composition, there is definitely a level of projecting yourselves onto these characters and wondering what you would do in that situation. Yeah, I I think it gives a lot of room for the audience. In a weird way, it even makes it a little bit more of realistic feeling movie because we don't have access to everything. We just have access to this part of the story. And if we were in there in these people's lives, we would only have so much access to the story. We would only be able to see so much of it and only have so much information. We would still kind of, we might still be able to see, oh, well, I can see why she doesn't want to be with this guy. I can see why he's upset. I can see why he feels betrayed. I can see why he might want to screw this guy over. I can see why he loves this song, whatever it is. There's a a stinginess with the information that I think leaves more room for the audience and kind of respects that the audience will draw, respects the audience to draw its own conclusions. Maybe they didn't intend to do that necessarily. Maybe they just didn't think they needed it and and they didn't really need it. Uh, Certainly the, the, the obsession with backstories is more recent. 
Uh, you used to be able to just throw a character into things and be like, here, they, here they are. We gave you three seconds of who this person is. That's all you need to know. Instead of, well, we're going to spend 20 minutes setting up an entire backstory for this character. And then we're going to make two movies. And then we're going to do a prequel because just so you really know who they are. But the obsession with origins. I think certain filmmakers, and there's a certain generation of filmmakers that really understands it and respects it. And I think that there is... Uh, other people who just expect that people aren't going to be able to pick up on things and don't really recognize that people get it. People understand it. And it's uh, that paranoia that we got to explain everything and that we got to, Oh, we got to put all the pieces in place. Otherwise, otherwise nobody's going to get it. It's like, no, you just have to show us just enough. Just sit with show people like this, the simplest short film and then ask them what they thought it was about. And, you know, all you need is a couple of verbal people to hear 12 different perspectives on what, on what something was about. My experience that was revelatory for me about that was working at a workshop and we were asked to share some of the things that we'd done. And I was like, okay, sure. Here's, here's a film that I did, um, I think like earlier that year, which is just about somebody looking for the spot to spread their friend's ashes. And they're over by the river. And one of the people in the workshop, and I was co-teaching this workshop, they see it and they said, oh, did their friend die in 9-11? I said, no. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh at that. But... No, but it was like, but I was like, I was like, well, I wasn't like, I didn't say it quite like that. But in my head, I was like, no. But I said, well, why? why? Uh, I mean, that wasn't what I meant. I mean, that could totally have happened. But why do you think that? And he's like, oh, because the they were still building the Freedom Tower that's uh, that's there. And they were still building it. So it was back. It was in the background of one of the shots. And so he's like, oh, yeah, because that was there. And I was like. You're not wrong. You're, that's a good. That's exactly. a good observation. And this is a guy who does. He wasn't like a filmmaker or anything like that. He was just a. He was a guy in a workshop. It was a filmmaking workshop. So they were in that headspace. But this is what our brains do: is they draw conclusions about things. You show us visual information, we draw conclusions about them. This is how editing works. This is why in Up you don't need to see. You know, getting into the after the who breaks his the guy breaks, the kid his, breaks leg. his leg. Yeah. The kid mm-hmm. breaks his leg. You don't you kid break you see the kid fall you see the ambulance driving you know the kids in the ambulance you didn't have to see the kid get loaded into the ambulance because our brains make that connection and that's how films work in the first place but i was literally told in film school yes david lynch made a racer head as a student film but that was 40 years ago audiences are dumb now straight up was told this you need to explain things People won't get it. They don't have the patience. And I'm like, well, maybe I don't want to make movies for those people then because no one's going to see my fucking thesis film anyway. So it may as well be that the five people that I'm making it for don't feel condescended to. I don't know. That's the thing. Unless unless you are automatically like right away getting hired by somebody who's paying for it. It's like, man, fuck that. I don't want to explain things. You don't need to know how my, like the full backstory of my characters. I'm going to just throw in like five references to things. You just draw your own conclusions. It'll be fun. Maybe it has nothing to do with anything. Exactly. Oh my God. I will also say for Eraserhead, my boyfriend who is not really a film person at all. He doesn't dislike films. He's just not like, oh my God, I got to watch the latest Gus Van Sant or Martin Scorsese movie or whatever. But he watched Eraserhead and he freaking loved it. And he even said, mm-hmm. I don't think I understood half of it, but I just loved the way I felt when I was watching it. And I think mm-hmm. that's also an important part of it too. Is Absolutely. I forget who said this. You feel your way through movies. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, you don't logic your way. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, especially a Lynch movie, which is all like dream logic and shit anyway, for the mm-hmm. most part. Yeah, and audiences don't need that much exposition. It's annoying. I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, I think it's not just about condescending to the audience. I think it's also that like a lot of people have this desire to know more and sometimes don't know that maybe you don't actually need to know Michael Myers' like whole whatever maybe we that never needed to know that no, maybe that doesn't make it better it makes it worse it makes it less scary but somebody uh-huh. like speaking of upcoming episodes of sean and my podcast i've been watching some george miller materials for an upcoming episode and you know both babe pig in the city and fury road it's like I'm Mac. Fury Road is like, I'm Mad Max. The world is terrible. I'm biting the two heads off this gecko now. Whoops, now I've been kidnapped and I'm a blood bag. And like, we get, we see like his flashbacks (laughs) to his trauma really, really fast. And that's it. You don't, I mean, there are the previous movies, but you would get this movie without having seen any of the previous movies. You don't need to have seen the previous movies. You don't need to know anything more. Babe, similarly, uh, Babe 2 picks up right where babe left off it's babe coming back to the farm after winning the sheepdog competition and we get the babe just won a sheepdog competition we don't know anything else and then all of a sudden hoggett's falling down the well and babe and hoggett's wife need to go to the city and there we are we don't need to know anything else to care no we don't it's uh, a waste of time getting worked up now yeah no i understand i feel the same way Oh, yeah. One of my favorites for it is there are problems with these movies, but honestly, the original run of mostly the Connery Bond movies, like if you watch Dr. No, they're just like, and this is the guy, his name is James Bond, and he's a spy. Well, where does he come from? What is what is his source? His name is James Bond, and he is a spy. Who cares? We sometimes call him Commander Bond because sometimes we'll reference the fact that he's a naval commander. Honestly, I, I have liked the newer films generally but the fact that they're like well let's tell a little bit about his backstory i'm like his name is james bond and he is a spy and there are other things that we could maybe revise about him and just not deal with like all the sexism and whatever but that's all i need i just need him to be the vehicle for action i he doesn't need anything Mm -hmm. else yeah Uh, and most characters don't need anything else they just need to be there in their story they should have whole lives if you need to build something but we don't need all of that exposition isn't the same thing as character development either no character development is what we need more of exposition is what we need less of and exposition Mm -hmm. isn't a substitute for actually building a three-dimensional character either you can say all you want about their childhood trauma who cares Mm -hmm. and i think part of the problem is people conflating television and film and how film for a while there i think it's drifting away from it and i think it's pulling in the other direction but for a while there in the 2000s and the 2010s film was getting more like television and in television you have to explain at the beginning of each act break you have to make sure that people know if they're coming if they're clicking in for the first time they know what they're watching and where they are in the story because that's how that medium works and it actually that makes perfect sense. And like, that kind of sucks, but also that is how that medium works. It is built around the commercials, but then films started to get that way because people came from TV and they started pulling TV people, people who are successful in TV into film, including the aforementioned Judd Apatow, who I actually rather enjoy some of his films, his own films, his production company is often hit or miss for me, but his, his own films have a certain level of character development 
and a certain level of reflective charm to them where a lot of his characters kind of realize, yeah, I suck, but actually come to those realizations in a real way as opposed like knocked up while it has its problems. And I know there were definitely problems on set with some of the actors and the sort of boys club thing, not getting along. But as a story, one of the things that I loved about that story was the breakup of those characters, the way that romance sort of falls apart at that point that it's always going to fall apart is set up so much better than every other rom-com at the time. But they kept bringing in people from TV and doing TV. Again, J.J. Abrams, they brought him over from TV and he's making movies and his movies are all kind of TV shows where they're over-explaining everything. And It's not just about TV though. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think you're totally right. But it's also just the fighting for people's attention kind of thing. And the fact that there's an anticipation now that everybody's watching a movie with their phone in hand and the movie is going to be competing with Facebook or texting or whatever else the person is doing. So I would assume that's part of why also films have gotten dumbed down in this way, much like TV eventually did as well, of constantly reminding you what's happening because they're expecting that you're not paying full attention, which, Mm. you know, is sad. Yeah. (laughs) This is so going on a Patreon episode. It's it's sad. It's sad, but it's also like I'm not going to say that I didn't spend both of these movies with my phone in my hand because I can't not have it in my hand lately. Like I'm just I just like I'm at that point right now in my in my cycle for for quarantine where I'm like, yeah, I need. Is it like the SNL skit where she's talking to the plan? I'm just, I just, it's, it's, yeah, it's like the, it's the peaks and the valleys and the, and the cycles where I'm just like, sometimes I'm like, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's good. I can get through this. I'm doing this. Yada, 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 yada. I can even ignore my phone for a while. And then there's other times where I'm like, I haven't, I've hardly seen any other human beings for a year. Mm -hmm. This is as close as I get. Scrolling through TikTok is as close as I get to human beings that I'm not married to. Um, that's how I feel. I mean, about I'm married it. to a lot of people too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Ooh. He, he is <laughs> seven wives, not all at the same time, though. Uh, seven wives or, for seven how many, Sean's. <laughs> how many have I made up over the years, Nicole? I don't know. Like at least four. He's telling me one of them four. is Morgan Fairchild. One of them has to be. Yeah, it is. Be. It's gonna be. That's gonna be the next one. No, usually it's it's just it's whatever makes me sound like the worst person. <laughs> so Sean likes to set expectations in a certain spot. Yeah, exactly. It's a very we, filmic thing of you to do a certain set up expectations and then just be like, boom. And then be like, hey, them. look, I'm only slightly better than that. <laughs> look at this bar right there on the floor. I stepped right over that. Didn't yeah. see that one coming. In a way, in a way, you know, I started doing that, you know, what, like 2013, 2014, something like that, really, in a way, really leading the charge as far as like, just bury those expectations and then and, and then expect uh, everybody to be fine with it when you just go like, all right, I'm just going to do like a little bit more, you know, now that's just America, yeah. but, uh, but uh, really setting the, setting the standard. Trendsetter ahead of the curve. You just gave me Speaking of expectations, you just gave me a great segue into one of our other questions. So if somebody was going to sit down and watch either just one film or the other or both of these films, what would you want to tell them 
before watching them or would you want them either again as just watching one or the other or as a double feature what do you think you would want to do to like set their expectations up I would recommend watching Noodle Shop first if you're doing it as a double Mm -hmm. feature because I think the second half of Noodle Shop plays better if you have not just watched it in Blood Simple whereas I did feel like watching the Blood Simple version having just seen Noodle Shop worked really well. I feel like if I'd seen Noodle Shop second, I'd be more like, this is exactly what I just saw, but not quite as good. Whereas if you do it the other way, it's just like, oh, this is what I just saw, but totally different. And it's kind of delightful. That's my advice. I I also think just tonally, like that would be a good good way to do it. Because otherwise, if you watch Blood Simple first, and then you watch noodle shop it's like oh intense 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 oh but then we're gonna have some some weird comedy yeah and then it's gonna get intense again i think like in terms of all right so you're gonna get some weird comedy and then it's gonna get intense and then it's gonna get more intense yeah i think that would flow really well i would i would actually watch that double feature yeah that might be a fun one although i'd probably i i don't know that i would necessarily recommend it to people as a double feature just because like, yeah. just because it is so much like you just watch this movie for as different as they are it is still just like you just watch this movie and they're close enough where i'd be like i eh, give it a couple days but probably even then if you're gonna watch both watch noodle shop first and then blood simple or just put um, a distance between it you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah have dinner watch one in the afternoon watch one after dinner get you know have a little snack in between rest your uh rest your uh do you feel like you would want to tell people or like give any sort of context to help people give noodle shop a chance because i do know some people personally that i think they would just be so taken aback by the tone they would stop it after 20 minutes but i would just want to say like just give it a chance i know it's like not so different but it's very different in some ways from the comedies you're used to or the content you know that you're used to but just give it a chance it's really good i mean i think give it give it a chance in terms of if something is different than what you're used to in general is good mm-hmm. advice about films mm-hmm. i i think that goes across the board and certainly here and uh, but on the other hand also not every film needs to be for everyone and if somebody's yeah. just like i don't like this kind of comedy it just it's not funny to me i was laughing my notes unlike sean I also take notes when I watch these films. You know, it was just, I was like, I'm laughing because I was like sitting here by myself at my desk, like, ah, this is, you know, I'm like, you know, everyone's saying this is bad, but I was not laughing like this when I watched Blood Simple and that's worth something Mm -hmm. to me. But by the same token, if for somebody else, they're like, this isn't funny. This is just dumb. You know what? Maybe then do turn off the film, honestly, Mm because maybe it's not for you and you don't need to torture yourself. There's, then there'll be more noodle shop for the rest of us to enjoy. Exactly. Because that's how that works. Yeah, I I mean, I I tend to try to, when I'm recommending stuff to people, be as cognizant as I can of what their interests are. And if I thought somebody didn't like this kind of comedy, I'd say, this is the kind of comedy it is. I don't know, like, that you'd be super into that. Here's why I liked it, if you want to watch it, but that's where it is. Just because... Honestly, a lot of that comes from how people recommend stuff to me. And this is a me problem, which is if people keep telling me something is really, really good, if it's only just really good, I'm going to have a problem. My opinion on every single Christopher Nolan movie, which is everybody keeps telling me he's amazing. And I keep going like, he's fine. It's fine. It's a fine movie. And Tenet's going to be your favorite, Sean, because nobody thought that was amazing. 
Liam keeps trying to convince me. No, I think it maybe has a thing to it. I maybe kind of, sort of, maybe. I'm like, no, I don't. I'm not going to watch that movie. It doesn't look interesting. Oh, you're going to you're gonna watch it when it's free. You're going to watch it so you can talk shit. Like, no, nah, but I don't. Like, that's no fun for me. Okay. Like, if uh, at least I, I, I was think... interested in Interstellar. I liked Interstellar. You like, liked Interstellar more than I did. And I saw Interstellar on the back of a chair on an airplane. Uh, and I was like, I like this. I'm into this. I mean, it fits like what I'm into. I like space. I like that kind of sci-fi. But also I feel like I didn't have like a bunch of people trying to tell me it was this amazing thing. You know, I think the most I heard about it was like, this is a good movie. This is a good space mm-hmm. movie. And other people telling me they didn't understand it. They explained it like four times, which is my perpetual issue with Christopher Nolan movies. I'm like, he explained it like four times in the movie. If you missed it, like, I don't know what to tell you. But anyway, that's kind of my approach to it is I, as I try to, I try to undersell it a little bit just be like, I think you'll probably like it. Here's why. This is the kind of humor to it. If I was suggesting it, I would try to like really couch that. With Blood Simple, I think I would do similarly. Like some people are into and can handle thrillers and, you know, rough movies like that. And other people just can't. And, you know, it depends if I'm like telling my wife about it. uh, She increasingly just doesn't, can't fuck with thrillers. And that's fine. I'd be like, yeah, this is probably not so much for you. And, uh, but other people, I'd say it's a good thriller. There's some beautiful shots in it. There's some beautiful work in it. If I was teaching a class, I'd say there's beautiful work in it. I think there's also things worth, uh, worth discussing about how it could be better. I went off on my Christopher Nolan thing and I forgot if I answered the question. You did answer the question. And (laughs) for my final question, which I think is the most important question. I don't know why I went into an English accent saying that, but. It's well, 805, which is late for grandma. So <laughs> where can people find you two and Four Mile Circus on the wonderful interwebs? Well, Four Mile Circus is on all the social medias pretty much at the handle is just Four Mile Circus. That is the numeral four, followed by the words mile, as in the measurement, and circus, as in the home of the clowns. And we are there everywhere, as well as at fourmilecircus.com and most especially at patreon.com slash fourmilecircus, where subscribers, paid subscribers, get all sorts of content, including every episode of our podcast before it's released to the public, unedited video of our Zoom conversations from which that podcast is drawn, if you want to see all the stuff that we end up cutting out of the show for one reason or another. Um, Sometimes it's a lot. I think there's one there where we, there it's like what, f- almost episode four hours three? long. Episode three is almost Whoa. four hours long. We were having a good time talking, oh talking about some it's- movies. <laughs> yeah, so, so they can get all that. But beyond that, on our Patreon, basically everything we do goes there first. So like... If we do a film, if you want to see it, if you want to see it before it eventually down the line gets through the festivals, and we're, like our Patreon is the place you're going to be able to see it first. Mm-hmm. And also, in addition to, and there's other stuff too, we put up um, educational materials from different sorts of media trainings we've done. We put up old work of ours that's not available anywhere else. We also do like production updates and like fun lists. Sometimes there are games like Funny Games Review Bingo to accompany the first episode of our podcast is available on our Patreon. But we also have some posts that there that are not behind a paywall. So you don't actually have to subscribe. And basically a lot of our shorts are available on patreon.com slash four mile circus 
just for free, not behind a paywall. So if you want to go check it out and get a taste of some of what we do, you don't have to subscribe in order to do that. Just go check it out. And if you're interested in me as an individual, I'm Nicole W. Solomon on Twitter and Nicole Witte, that's N-I-C-O-L-E-W-I-T-T-E on the Instagrams. And Sean is some places too, I believe. I am on the Twitters and the Instagram. I'm on I'm on the Twitter until they ban me again. And Instagram as Uncle Sean. That's S-E-A-N. And Uncle Scene, if you will. <clears throat> oh, it's Irish. Not my you. fault. It's not my <laughs> fault that we taught the English how to write and they just didn't. <clears throat> Uh, anyway, Uncle Sean on, on various places, Sean, uh, Sean-Manion.com. There's a bunch of stuff sometimes. But again, like pretty much the place we are, we're turning into more and more of a hub of all of our stuff, whether paid or not, is is really our Patreon. Like a lot of our short films that were publicly available before, we're t- it's just become kind of a nice hub for that. And we'll post new stuff here and there. You can like, see uh- Sean act in the short film Mare that we wrote together and I directed and Sean stars in. Yeah, you want to I'm, see a different side of Sean Mannion? Does he now? I'm, and it's on the beach. Yeah, full circle. If you want to see me, yeah, if you want to see me act on a beach, and and I put act in the largest of scare quotes. That's there. Uh, every once in a while, I act in things. I, 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 it's a horror movie, so if you want to see bad things happen to Sean, also this is your spot. <laughs> Which honestly, in, I don't blame them. Mm-hmm. I don't blame them. <laughs> Well, we will definitely hyperlink the social medias as well as the Patreon in the episode description below. Guys, this was such a great way to end the day and not fully end the week because, you know, we all have one more day, but this was a wonderful way to move into the weekend. This was a wonderful discussion. I cannot wait to go back and edit this and hear how many times I snort laughed. Thank you guys so much for stopping by the podcast. And I can't wait for the next episode of Four Mile Circuses, The Celluloid Mirror. You are too kind. This was this Thank was a much. blast. Thanks so much for, for having us on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having us on. our show for this week i want to thank sean and nicole from four mile circus and the celluloid mirror again for coming by definitely be sure to check out all of their amazing content i have it hyperlinked below in the description and with that i will see you for what i think is an oddly appropriate episode for april 1st and when we reveal it you'll see why So on that note, stay safe and of course keep watching movies. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check back every Tuesday for new episodes and be sure to check us out on our Patreon page where you can support the show and get some really cool exclusive stuff for doing it. A very special thanks to our Patreon supporters, John F., Variolo Fencing, LLC, and Helen Rafferty. For news on upcoming episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Girl Presses Play. 
The show is written, produced, and hosted by Alana Rafferty. Intro music is composed by Asha Iwanowitz, and our logo design is by Mark Sauvé. Thanks again. See you next time. Girl, press this play.